Here's a question. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been under some form of attack? <laughs> Go ahead, girl. <laughs> Eliora, I like dialogical preaching, so we can do this if we need to. This is awesome. Um, was it someone close to you? Have you ever been lied about? Family, friends? It feels gut-wrenching. When we enter our text today, we're reading about a man who writes a song about that very kind of thing. It's why I love the Psalms. It's real life with real people living in a real world of real heartache. We say around here that grace changes everything, and then we quickly say afterward, and change is a slow, messy process. And if it's this long and slow, messy process, then the Psalms are a spiritual map, an emotional soundtrack for us to enter in to really, really hard times. The first clue you get in this passage about what this is about, the context of this song that David uh, writes, is what looks like a liner note in most English translations of the Bible. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from the face of Absalom, his son. Now, if you're like familiar with American or English Bibles, in the Gospels and stuff and lots of other places, they will put a little liner note in there to kind of tell you like Jesus heads to Jerusalem or something like that. But in the Psalms, those liner notes are actually part of the original scripture. And I guess the guy who did all the versification numbers just didn't know that. Um, so like in Hebrew Bibles and others, it'll be verse zero. That's what starts this. And so it's beckoning us back to the, to the story that happens in Psalms, excuse me, that happens in Samuel, where King David is in the middle of it. In the middle of his enemies have been chasing him, and his enemy number one is actually his own son. It gives us the context in Samuel where, where David would pen these lyrics. He was running for his life literally. His son was trying to, take, to kill him and take over the throne. He brought up an army against him. And Samuel, it says that day and night that Absalom was conspiring against the reign of David. In, in, the, uh, in ancient Israel, citizens would gather at the gate, the main gate in Jerusalem. And that's where like adjudication of matters happened and all that other stuff. So, so what Absalom did was go set up shop there. He literally held court there. And he would say things according to Samuel like this, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Would it be that I would be appointed judge? And the scripture says that what happens is slowly and surely, day and night, Absalom stole away the hearts of Israel. He stole away the hearts of Israel from his king and his father and turned those hearts against Israel. David. By the time Psalm 3 is written, Absalom has gathered thousands of Israelites to commit this high treason. David barely escapes with his life. But that's not the worst of it. It's much worse. What Scripture calls odious, 
which the Giorgio translation of that is really jacked up. It says this, that when David was gone, they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. So with the betrayal comes this shame, a purpose reviling of himself with his father's wives and concubines, odious. I am not a mental health professional, but I believe this could be called a dysfunctional family system working its way through a crisis. It's probably in the DSM-5 or something, but I don't know. Either that or it's like a new, it's whatever is going to replace succession. Thank you. Not that you should watch that. Yeah, but you know people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this is precisely the point, guys. Some of the pain and betrayal and, 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 and attacks that we receive seem almost unreal. Like, how is this happening? How is this real? It feels fictional. And then what David does seems like he might need, like, it's bizarre, but he writes a poem. By the way, all the best poetry and songs, they come from a place of working it out, right? But, model, but what he's doing is modeling for us um, how to interact with God in lament, even complaint, while still relying upon God. He's forming us to sing uh, amid the most chaotic and anxious and dysfunctional experiences that we have for singing in the pain One of the first things I tell people if they're going through some traumatic times is that they would take and eat a steady diet of the Psalms. To meditate on them, to let them be hummed into their souls. When our kids have gotten scared, even to this day, we turn on a bunch of, uh, we have a a playlist we call the Jesus music. That didn't start out of the blue. It's because mom and dad do the same thing. When I was walking in this morning, my first Jesus music, that probably the first hymn I ever learned when I was 15 years old and become a Christian, was Holy, Holy, Holy. I'm walking in this morning, getting ready to tell you that my Jesus music is Holy, 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 and Holy, Holy, Holy is being practiced as I walk in. We're such great planners. God is just so kind. So what we do when we're feeling it's under attack, when we're actually betrayed, Psalm 3 teaches us to be serenaded, to go to God in the middle of it. We go to God, though, in a specific way or in specific ways. We go to God with the things the way they actually are. Though our situations may seem unreal, our attitude about them must be with clarity about what what's actually grounded in reality, even if it's horrific, maybe especially if it's horrific. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Do you know how David describes his betrayal? Exactly what's happening. He's just saying what is. The reality is that there are many foes risen up against him. David does not, uh, he, he laments without fluff, or hyper, hyperbole. 
like not making things better or worse. He cries out, not with rose-colored glasses, nor some kind of um, heroic kind of martyrdom or victimization. He just says what is. He goes to God with the things the way they are. And we tend to either um, maximize someone else's sin or brokenness or betrayal and minimize our own. But we can also underestimate the pain that's going on and kind of blow it off with certain niceties. But Psalm 3 frees us to go to God just as things are, without excuses or embellishments. It takes an incredibly deep faith to go to God with things the way they actually are. Not how you hope them to be, not how you wish they were different, but as they are. And it's not that we just go to God as things are, but as we are. This is an amazing part in this passage. It says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That's verse 2. And Samuel gives us a backstory to this. The rumor, the day and night with Absalom is saying, hey man, David's out. He's done. People are saying that God can't, people are saying, people can't, that God, you know, it's not going to save David and his kingdom, his reign that he promised. Samuel tells us that as David's fleeing um, Jerusalem, there's a man who comes up to him and starts cursing David. And he's saying, to, he's, he's asking God to overthrow David's reign. And you would think, which is what happened, his boys came around, David's, and were like, we're going to take this guy out. We're going to get him. This is treason. And David looks at them and says, if he curses, and the Lord has told him to curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? This is clearly David with some maturity, post-Sheba, post-Nathan's rebuke David, post-adultery, murder, deceit. David knows that he has no right to enter into this kind of honor. He knows his own weakness and his heart. He knows even his repentance. And so he has a finer tuned instinct and a deeper humility than he did before. No presumption. He knows that none of this is earned by him. That it is an honor that comes from God that, that is a rightful king, but a broken man. And that he is not qualified on his own to walk in these ways. Friends, you can't be rescued from the real situations unless you really show up as fully who you are. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bid me come to thee. So we see that God wants us to have, like to live in reality, have an authentic relationship with him. And he gives us the words to do so. But David isn't just trying to have some type of cathartic experience. He, he, he's actually orienting to, to who God is. So the whys of this lament, this complaint, this reliance are just as important as the hows. And the first thing he comes to is what I was teaching with the kids is because of who he is. And David, in, in this poetic moment, uh, uh, says that you are a shield about me. You're my glory, the lifter of my head. This is who God is and why we can come to him. He calls him a shield, our only true defense. He calls him his glory. And I said with the kids, the weight 
of David is found in God. The weight that anchors you down in the reality of such storms. And he calls him the head lifter or the lifter of his head. We'll make you do what the kids did. Put your heads down. Think about David running from his son and all who would try to kill him. Now put your hand under your chin and raise it up. Leave it there. Not the hand, just the chin. Unless you want to leave your hand up there, that's fine. Can you think of a better thing to, to, to identify God is in the middle of these struggles than a shield, the weight of your very life, and the lifter of your head? And yet it's not even just the character and nature of God that he talks about. Names with this poetic beauty. He starts out what he does, the way God acts in the world. God's past faithfulness ends up fueling David's present trust. I cried to the Lord, verse 4 and 5 said, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustains me. David should be dead. But God frustrated his conspirators and gave him rest on the Mount of Olives. Samuel tells us the backstory of this, that, 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 that these all things actually happened, that they heard a cry from the mountain, and he moved, he went up there, and he finally had some rest. And not just rest, rest in safety. And he did not die. David goes and rehearses God's mercy and power, what he has done for him in the past, that he's been rescued by God's love and kindness and strength. Friends, what's happening here is something that, that um, oh, in church world, this can sound trite, but it is a fundamental spiritual discipline. And that is counting God's blessings. To enumerate them, to stack up the memories, to etch them into our hearts, to make Ebenezer's in our souls, in our journals. We have all suffered deeply. And pain like that ends up shaking our faith. It's normal amid any kind of trauma like that. But it is counteracted by the rehearsal of God's Faithfulness, remembrance is the mother of trust. So we keep record of his rescues. We bean count his blessings. We memorialize his mercy as a spiritual discipline because it's not so much when it's happening, all the good stuff's happening, it's when it's not happening that we need to be reminded again that God will do good in this world. That's what it makes able to say in the next verse, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Because he knows what God's done, what's the kind of stuff he does, and the way he'll figure out the future for him. He's diving into the deep blue of the unknown with 10,000 people encamped and saying, and that won't ultimately shake me because of this recollection, which creates this this, this future hope in the power and the character and the plan of God. 
Look, y'all, David didn't trust David. Not his strength or his kingship, his moral character, his power, his weaponry. Certainly not his parenting. David had trusted Yahweh that even when David was not faithful, that Yahweh was and powerful and strong. And he knows in the back of his head somewhere that, that, that God had promised a covenant, a, a, a future, a permanent reign of the Davidic line. And so he's betting on that while his son is trying to kill him. The evidence is not going well at this point, but he's trusting beyond something of it. So we go to God because of who he is and what he does as well. All right. Going to God is the main part of this, this psalm, but there's something also, also very important because we actually ask God to go for us as well. If you go to a rest stop and there's loud music and all you're doing is changing a tire, it ain't much of a rest stop. If you go to God in the middle of a need for deliverance and there is no deliverance, So we're going to God, not just to make us feel better. We are trying to sing him into the world to act. It's a prayer that God would move the structures and the institution and the hearts and the world towards justice. David says this, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. This is such an amazing end to the psalm. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O God. What an amazing image. Uh, Not just theologically, but like just imagistically. Wake from your slumber and come. Come. Come in justice, is verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That can make you uncomfortable. And it would have made David uncomfortable too, knowing full well of his lack of righteousness, but he doesn't bat an eye because there's something that he's doing about this that is utterly reliant upon God. The NIV, I think, translates it a little bit better, and most scholars kind of agree that it's not so much my God does this, but it's a request. Strike all my enemies on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. David is singing that God would act, that Mama Bear would come, that my big brother would show up. That, that there would be deliverance from this evil. When I was first thinking about this sermon, I thought maybe I should title it, Did We Just Pray God Would Punch Somebody in the Mouth? And the answer is yes. Given all that we're saying, we didn't say we'd punch somebody in the mouth. That's a really important distinction. We're not even 100% sure if every time we want someone punched in the mouth, that is a legitimate punch in the mouth. He has the option of saying no. And sometimes it's our mouth that might need a little something. So lean into this, y'all. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. Should be hummed into our hearts, but so should break my enemies and break the teeth of the wicked. And that's a balancing act. You can't figure that out. That takes a lifetime to figure out how to pray those kinds of prayers because of all the junk we have in there. But that is forming us to be 
more like that. I am clear, again, that we are not to take up arms against the absaloms of the world and try to crush them. Heck, we'd be crushing ourselves half the times. But I am saying we should pray for injustice to end. Don't be confused. He is praying for God to do it. He is saying, God, will you go for me? Not, God, can I go for you? So do not hesitate to pray that the hand of the gunman be shattered, the arm of the perpetrator be brought down. Those are good instincts. Make sure you're not praying them with ultimate hate and vengeance. But carry that same prayer over to your own lives in the sins that so easily entangle you for destruction of those injustices that are real. Ask God to rise and bring justice to neighborhoods, to courtrooms, to classrooms, to bedrooms, to your own kitchen. Pray for justice and sing for it for the Lord. But of course, this is not how the whole thing ends up ending anyway. Because right after this prayer of justice that makes you a little squirmy with broken teeth and all is a prayer for mercy. The first part's easy to see. David's asking for mercy on him. Save me, oh God. Deliver me, oh my God. That's easy. David is praying that God would rescue him, body, soul, and spirit. But that's not how it ends. David doesn't limit his prayer to himself and his own merciful rescue. He includes all of Israel in his prayer amid a civil war. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He puts that weight right back on God. If any of this is going to be fixed, it's you, Yahweh, who will do it. And then he says, now bring your blessing, your blessing of salvation upon all. Please do not miss how radical of a prayer this is. Who are the people of God? Who does it include? It's half the people that are, or all the people that are attacking them, plus those who are defending him. Absalom has stolen the hearts of Israel away, or a vast majority of it, or a large portion of it. David is praying for his enemies before Jesus ever even taught us to do it. Because he's got the instinct of the Trinity going on in there in some beautiful, miraculous way. The Spirit is at work. He is not looking to his own ability to bless, but God's salvation is the Lord's to be then brought into the earth. Yes, David prays for justice. He wants Israel and Absalom to, to stop their rebellious leadership, to stop its blasphemy against the covenant of God, to take out the teeth. To cry, to, to, he cries out for their fangs to be shattered. But in the middle of it, he prays for mercy. That the kingdom would be won back to Yahweh who holds salvation. That would be united rightly again in mercy. Lord's blessing be upon all your people. This isn't a theory of mine. This is actually how it plays out in Samuel. You guys, like, just read through this Second Samuel portions. He, he, he commands, commands that no one would kill Absalom. The one to take down, if you want to is take down the main guy. And he, he demands that no one do it. And when, he, and when Absalom dies, David mourns. He weeps. God's blessing be upon his people in Israel. 
even amid this unjust and awful civil war. Break their arm, but do it in a way that embraces them to yourself. Break their teeth, but in order to save them and to rescue us back to one another. So what's this mean for us? It means that we have to mix our prayers for justice with prayers of mercy. That the gunman's hand would be shattered, but that his heart would be shattered into, by mercy and grace and love as well. We pray that people who are doing atrocities would stop. The lending practices, the corrupt politicians, the despots, the trafficking. We pray against all that would hurt any life from womb to tomb. And we pray, pray that they would be declawed and defanged. But we're not just praying that. We're praying that people would come to know the beauty and goodness of God, knowing full well that we also can be, have to, may have to have prayers against our own greedy selves, our own murderous and adulterous selves as well. Because the goal of all of that judgment is to crumble our pride, to crumble our folly, to break the teeth of sin that we participate in, and to run into the embrace of the God that is of salvation, who brings blessings to all of Israel. I said earlier that David um, was trusting that God would do something in the future. I said that he had that night on the mountain. That mountain wasn't the Mount of Olives. David had no idea how it would play out. Couldn't have. But God did, and we do now. Where Jesus fulfills the reign of the king, great David's greater son. One person says, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of God, son of David, son of man. The one who will come to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Though David didn't know it, the ultimate king was Jesus. That Mount of Olives this is where Jesus spent a little bit of time. Bottom of the Mount Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane, where he makes explicit the kind of kingship he's going to have, where he sweats blood because he knows what's about to face him, that instead of the breaking of the teeth of the wicked, it would break the bones of, uh, uh, break the body of the Son of Man, Son of David. It's also the place where it's recorded that he ascended into heaven, the victory of the resurrection. David rested on that mountain. Jesus suffered in that city so David and all of us could rest on that mountain. Psalm 3 is a model for us, but Jesus is the source for us to live this embodied reality of justice and mercy and reliance upon God, where we can complain and lament and rely. And so, brothers and sisters, embrace this psalm because Jesus is its fulfillment. He is the Lord our God, a shield about us, our glory, and the lifter of our head. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We pray that you would help us sing with justice and mercy, love and truth. We long for your right rule over the earth and over us.
when we miss it all to bring glory to you and your redemption. We pray in your name. Amen.